In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their hometown to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. 
On the eighth day, when it was time to be circ- to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What I'm saying is that as long as an heir is under age, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees, until the time set by his father. So also, when we were under age, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Thanks, Roger. Uh, Well, Merry Christmas, everyone. Uh, My name is Geoffrey Lynn. I'm one of the staff here, and I'll be taking us just for a few minutes to think about the passages that were read for us already this evening. Let me start by acknowledging it is hot in here, Uh, so if you want to take a break or anything, feel free just to head outside. There's water at the doors as well, if you'll find that helpful. I'll ask you please to open up the leaflet that you're given, and you'll see each of the passages printed there. I'm going to say something about all of them, uh, just in brief, as we go along. Where I want to begin, though, is we're saying that the Christmas story is very familiar, but not actually very nice. The Christmas story is very familiar, but it's not actually very nice. Uh, Luke, of course, says that it's good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Uh, We saw that in chapter 2, verse 10. He's describing light bursting into darkness, hope for humanity, because, of course, everyone smiles at a baby. But in many ways, and at many levels, this story is really quite unpleasant. Let me point out three things. Firstly, it begins with a census. That second reading there, Luke chapter 2, verse 1. A census that requires the whole world to uproot. Now, it's worth knowing that back then, at the time, travel was dangerously unsafe. But this was forced mass migration on a global scale. The very opposite, of course, to closing borders. 
By the time the particular person we're focusing in on, Mary and her husband Joseph, make their way home, secondly, we discover that there's no guest room anywhere in an entire city for a pregnant woman who is in labour. And her baby, it turns out, is born in a cattle feeding trough. This is no gently rocking bassinet. Can you begin to imagine how callous and how heartless a society must have become to have reached that level? And in Matthew's account of what goes on here, he records that this baby boy is seen as such a threat to the powers that be that when the political establishment hear rumours about what that baby might grow up to become, the king ruthlessly orders the brutal execution of all the boys under the age of two. That is the very definition of a totalitarian regime, of an autocracy, of the kind of oppression that sadly we still see in parts of our world today. So my point, this very familiar story to us is not actually very nice. Now, I apologise if I sound like a bit of a grump or a scrooge at Christmas. But I want us to see that it's painting a pretty grim picture of the state of the world and a rather damning indictment on the nature of humanity. And that means, I think, that the only way that this story could possibly be called good news that will bring great joy, the only way that's possible, well, it lies with the God who sent this baby into the world, with what he is like and what he does for us. And above all, why he would do so. Because you'd think he'd have to have a pretty good reason. And if he does, it's worth hearing about. Well, for something different today, I thought that instead of focusing on the details of this well-known birth story, instead I'd spend time more on its meaning and how it affects our lives today. And I want to do that particularly with the last reading that was brought to us from Galatians 4 on the bottom right-hand side of your handout. Because here, the Apostle Paul, one of the first Christian leaders, he tries to answer that very question. Why did God send his son at the first Christmas? Well, look with me, if you will, at that reading down at the very end at number four, verse four. Verse four, when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Uh, in these few words, actually, is the entire Christmas story in a nutshell. It's told without all the embellishments, all the distractions of the angelic host, or the starry-eyed shepherds, or the wise men from afar. The story is simply this. God sent his son, his highest emissary, his ambassador and representative. God sent his son to all mankind, to all who are born of a woman. Why? Well, actually, the words born under the law gives us a hint. Look at it again in verse 4. When the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. Born under the law to redeem those under the law. Let me offer just two comments. One about our situation and the other about God's solution. Firstly, a comment about our situation. Uh, everyone here knows what it's like to be under the law. Uh, 
from the cradle to the grave, our lives are governed by the laws of our country. They're devised by politicians, they're enforced by the courts, and whether we're talking about gas price caps or industrial relations, all of us know how radically a change in government can alter our lives. For better or for worse, well, that really depends on your political persuasion. Now, don't mishear me. I'm not complaining in the slightest. We here in Australia, we are so fortunate to live under the rule of law, not under the whim of a dictator. And as you all know, the beautiful thing about Australia is that every few years we get to vote our leaders out if we don't like what they've done. But actually, what's far more significant than being under the law of Australia is the fact that every one of us, every man, woman and child, ever born, everyone who will ever be, all of us is also under the law of God. We are under the law of the one who made us. Because out of his generosity, he gave us life itself. And that means, of course, that we who are made by God and who bear his image, well, we must have unparalleled dignity and immeasurable worth if we're made by God. What that means is that living under God's law, living in God's world, under God's rule, in theory, that should be wonderful. Can you imagine, even just for a moment, how amazing it would be if every person on planet Earth lived the way God made us to live? Now, even if we just started with trying to love our neighbour as ourselves. Yet, of course, the sad reality is that our ongoing refusal to live God's way means that now God's law is no longer a blessing. Sadly, it's become a terrible curse because it condemns us for all our failings and shortcomings. It's the reason why in the Bible... The Bible, the biggest problem facing humanity today, oh, it's not beating rising inflation. It's not reversing global warming. It's not preventing wicked tyrants. According to the Bible, the biggest problem facing the world today is our sinfulness. For failing to keep God's law, all of us stand condemned accountable to the one who blessed us so extravagantly, but whom we've chosen to ignore. Now, once again, that's hardly what you'd call good news that will cause great joy for all the people. In fact, that would leave us in utter despair were it not for God's glorious intervention. And so here's the second comment I want to make. From our situation to God's solution... God's solution? Well, Galatians 4 again, verse 4, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. God's solution is that he has redeemed us when we so desperately needed it. Now, there's a longer story that lies behind this. If you want to know how God does that, well, actually, the 66 books of the Bible tell that story in all its glorious splendor. But let me give you the quick version. In laying down his life, which we acknowledge every Easter, 
God's Son, Jesus, satisfies the demands of God's law because he bears the consequences our sins deserved. He stands in our place and that means there's no longer any charges left against us. Now the price has been fully paid. In other words, what Galatians is saying is that our redemption is orchestrated and executed by God himself. And once he declares that it's finished, once he says it's over and complete, there is nothing left to be done. Now that word redemption, it means more than simply presenting a ticket to claim a prize, you know, like a lottery, when you redeem what you have won. Redemption here... It means a buyback. It means paying a price to release something that's been held in hock. Or better still, redemption here is the handing over of a ransom to release a hostage and to set someone free. That is good news to cause great joy. But actually, Paul has one final implication to draw out. Come back to the passage one last time. Galatians 4. When the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. That we might receive adoption to sonship. So what Paul is saying is that God doesn't just redeem us from the awful, awful burden of the law, of failing to live in right relationship with the one who gave us everything. What God does is grant us an extraordinary new status. He gives us an amazing new identity. This is something that was previously unheard of. He gives us adoption to sonship. This is the quintessential rags to riches story. It's the movement from squalor to luxury, from living rough on the street to having a place in our Heavenly Father's home and a seat at His banquet table and a place of honour at His right hand in glory. Because God doesn't just save us from something, He saves us for something. He doesn't just save us from something awful. He saves us for something incredible. Because if he didn't, if he didn't finish the job, it would hardly be a rescue. Now, just in case there's any misunderstanding, when Paul talks about adoption to sonship, it's important to know that he's not contrasting sons with daughters. Rather, he's contrasting sons with slaves. Because back then, only a son could inherit. And the measure of the inheritance that God has in store for us is the magnificence of the splendor, is the magnificence of the benefactor. What we receive is from God himself. People often say that Christmas is all about family time. And that's certainly true. But the image that's on view for us here is so much better, so much more perfect in every way, which I think is terribly comforting because, to be honest, sometimes Christmas can be very hard for families for a whole variety of reasons. 
Instead, what we're being told is that when we're redeemed by God, we are also adopted as His children. We are brought fully into His family. And that's why Christmas is such a joyful celebration. It's not because of the food we eat. It's not because of the presents we give. It's because of the people we share it with. The family to whom we now belong. Actually, that's reinforced in verse 6. If you notice there in Galatians 4, verse 6, because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our, into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. All verse 6 is saying is that we get to call God our Father. Uh, that word Abba there, we just, we'd loosely say that's Dad. We get to call Dad. What's more, we have Jesus, his firstborn son, as our eldest sibling. You know, that's the reason why this church family will gather again next Sunday and the Sunday after that, and in fact, every Sunday next year. The reason is because we belong to God and we want to celebrate His goodness to us and the redemption that He alone can bring. Well, let me wrap it up. I want to tie all this together by going back to verse 4 of Galatians 4, because you'll have noticed that I skipped over the words at the very start of the sentence. Galatians 4, verse 4, but when the set time had fully come, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, and so on. You'll have noticed that in the other readings that we had, uh, there was an, a recurring theme about time. Luke, for example, used lots of time markers to reliably and accurately date the very first Christmas. He talked about the days of Caesar Augustus while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And likewise, in Galatians 4, Paul uses a time marker, although it's a different sort. It's something more grand. It's something on a cosmic scale, in fact. Verse 4, when the set time had fully come. What Paul is saying is that according to God's timetable, according to God's plan, the decisive moment in world history has finally arrived. In the birth of Jesus, God has finally stepped into his world to make things right again and to restore them to the way in which they should have been all along. Now, if you're somewhat sceptical about the magnitude of what I'm saying, then I do realise that the world didn't seem any different after that first Christmas. I take it that's because great occasions often pass unnoticed at first. But what Paul is saying is that in sending his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those from under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship, in saying all that, God has acted finally and decisively to fulfill the promises we've been longing for. Because 30 years later, at the first Easter, that son of God completed his mission and went home to his father who sent him in the first place. And soon enough, that son will appear in glory 
and all creation will shower him with the honour and praise and adoration that he deserves because he's redeemed people from every nation, tribe, language and tongue. Can I say that if you thought Christ's birth was worth celebrating, imagine the spectacle of his coronation. In fact, in just a moment, we're going to sing, sing choirs of angels, sing in exultation, sing all you citizens of heaven above. Let me ask you, do you know what time it is? Do you know what time it is? It's critical, of course, to be able to tell the time. Uh, Whether it's that increasingly old-fashioned habit of wearing a watch so that you don't always run late. Or whether it's to be able to interpret the signs around climate change because we're told time is running out. Do you know what time it is? The thing is, everyone... Everyone uses Christmas in some way to mark the passage of time. Everyone uses Christmas in some way to mark the passage of time. Every year, my wife wants our fly screens washed just before Christmas. Now, can I say, this is not for the guests. This is because Christmas marks the end of another year, the chance to finish one chapter before we race on with the next. It's the reason why for weeks now I have been deferring meetings until the new year because in the ebb and flow of our lives, Christmas is that moment to reflect on what has been and to prepare for what's still to come. That's why I asked for us to have Ecclesiastes 3 read for us today. Because Ecclesiastes 3 so famously says there is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the sun. The challenge, of course, is knowing what time it is and therefore how you will respond. Do you notice in Ecclesiastes 4? Look at some of the things it says. Verse 4, a time to mourn and a time to dance. I think of Queen Elizabeth's death, time to mourn. Or when it comes to dancing... Well, I think of Argentina at the Football World Cup because those South Americans, they know how to dance. Verse 5, a time to embrace and a time to refrain. Well, there you go, that's COVID for you, isn't it? Hugs are back. Verse 6, a time to keep, a time to throw away. We all know there is a deteriorating economic outlook, so do you sell property and shares? Or do you hold on for a little bit longer? But perhaps most poignant for us, verse 8, a time for war and a time for peace. We think of Ukraine as we think of both those sentiments. This year we have seen so many significant events on a global scale, let alone at a personal one. Some of them have been truly horrific. Others have been absolutely wonderful but all of them will be forgotten. And none of them can ever match the lasting significance of God sending his son to redeem those under the law so we might receive adoption to sonship. 
This is the most significant intervention in his world since God made it. It is the reason why we divide world history into time before Christ and time that is in the year of his birth. Because ultimately Christmas doesn't just mark a baby's birth. It says that everything has changed. Everything is now different. Everything will be better. And I say it would be a tragedy if you missed the event and you missed out. Perhaps 2023 is the year to finally accept this wonderful gift which God has freely given. He's given redemption and adoption. And so perhaps as you leave tonight, uh, you might pick up from the table outside one of these little copies of Luke's whole story of Jesus' life. Because it tells the mission of God's Son. How he grew up, the way that he lived, why he died, and how that changes everything. Not just every minute of every day, but for all eternity. Please, whatever you do, don't miss out.